All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that looks a little more like spring, and we are so thankful that we can gather together here in your house and worship you. We ask that you would uh, open our hearts and minds as we talk about some some pretty detailed and maybe even seemingly nitpicky things about uh, understanding who your son Jesus is and the incarnation and, and all of what went along with him coming here to uh, be a sacrifice on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that we would uh, have our, our hearts and minds uh, opened that much more to just the amazing miracle that is the incarnation, the wonder of God becoming man and dwelling in our midst and dying on our behalf and rising again. Uh, Lord, after several questions in a row that were just so bleak and, and uh, highlighted our, our sinfulness and our fallenness and our pride and our rebellion, we thank you that you made the move to come to us and that on the cross, God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. We thank you again and, and pray that you would be with us and glorified in our conversation. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. All right, old-timey sermon illustration. William Greenfield was once in company at the house of a friend with a person of deistical principles, a stranger to him, who asked why Jesus Christ is called the Word. What is meant by the Word? It is a curious term. Greenfield, ignorant of the skeptical motive of the inquirer, replied with the mild simplicity and decision by which his character was marked. I suppose, as words are the medium of communication between us, the term is used in the sacred scriptures to demonstrate to us that Christ is the only medium between God and man. I know no other reason. To this, the deist could make no reply. You're all speechless too, because it's a good one. Whoa! That must be something you could have said. Well, he probably thought there wouldn't be a good answer, and there was one, and he said, oh, okay, makes sense. Uh, maybe it was just a really honest deist who, who uh, was a little more open-minded. All right, so we're on question 10. We looked at 17, 18, and 19. 20? Yeah, 20, sorry. Um, last week, which, uh, all of which led us to the conclusion that in ourselves, our nature is enmity to God. Uh, especially this guy. So, let's read number 20. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And in the excitement of uh, getting handouts and stuff together for Bethany who's our uh, guest from the Navigators. I didn't make copies of this. Hey, anyone have a code in here and willing to go make 12 copies? Thank you. Your coffee won't get that cold. And we won't say anything important while you're gone. So yeah, we spent the last several weeks talking about how bad our situation is apart from Christ. We have no will to return to him. And even if we did, we had no way to return to him. So that's not great. And then we get this beautiful question. Let me pull out this Bible, which I got when I promoted to third grade, and see if I can beat you to 1 Peter 1.10. 
No, I didn't. All right, I'm going to close it again, and then I'm going to go. Way, way at the end there. Oh, man. Here we go. You got it? have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you? Could you read through 12? Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was in indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been revealed to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So even the angels wonder how on earth God goes about preparing redemption for falling, fallen and falling man. That, that it's, it's a problem that looks like it has no solution. With, with man, it is impossible. Seemingly with angels, it would have been impossible. They looked at it and thought, I don't know how I'd begin. But with God, all things are possible. And he goes about it in a way that really no one was prepared for, even though they had all these prophecies leading up to it. And in hindsight, we look back at all of them and go, oh my goodness, I would have been ready for Jesus when he arrived if I had all that scripture. Well, no, you, you're looking back through the lens of what happened. Um, it, it was not as clear as all that. Uh, there were just certain elements of the coming of the Messiah uh, that were very clear. And, and the idea that God becomes man certainly is something that, that it happens in other religions, but wasn't a strong tradition within Judaism because the whole emphasis is on one God, right? Monotheism. If that one God becomes man, leaving heaven vacant or something, uh, that would be problematic. But the idea of the Trinity is a Christian notion that, that we're going to look at a little bit more again today. Uh, and when we do look back on it with hindsight, we see that there, there was no other way. And Anselm, 11th century uh, theologian, one of my favorites, uh, he wrote a whole treatise on this notion. It was called Cur Deus Homo, which means why the God-man? Why the God-man? Why, why did this have to happen? Uh, and he came to the conclusion there was no other way, and I'm going to walk you a little bit through that. Uh, he starts with the question of who could help us in the state that we were in. Was there a whole pool of possible contenders? Were there a stack of resumes? Uh, well, he narrows it down, first of all, with only another human. The notion was that you can only be a substitute uh, of humans if you're a human. Otherwise, you are not a substitute. You say, wait a minute, how did we have substitutionary offerings in the old covenant economy like a lamb or a, a bullock or a, a whatever being put to death, that was uh, ceremonial. It was pointing forward. And God, in his grace, covered over and overlooked the former sins as we look forward to the cross. But even for those Old Testament saints, it was that human substitute that actually atoned for their sins. Uh, and uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, who's a, an Eastern father, uh, said, what the Son of God does not assume, he cannot redeem. Meaning, if he doesn't assume humanity, he cannot redeem humanity. 
So this is uh, a core principle of redemption. But he can't just be another human. Anselm then takes us, and this is like blowing through cliff notes. Anselm takes us then down to the notion that he must be divine. Because man has only one true allegiance, and that is to God. If another human somehow were to die for us, carry out redemption for us, save us, our allegiance would be to a man, and that would lead us into sin and idolatry. Besides, only a divine being could redeem us. Because even if a man lived a perfect life, he's just doing his basic duty, right? When you drive down the road, I don't know, how do you think of the signs that say speed limit, Sean? I know how you think of them, Richard. You never exceed them. What about you? They're more like suggestions. More guidelines than actual rules, right? You you think like, well, if it's rainy, I'll go 25 and a 25. Otherwise, you know, no one's pulling me over for going 32. End of the day, the law is this is your maximum speed. We just often don't think of it that way. In the same way, perfection, right? You think of it as this thing that could be attained by maybe one person in a quadrillion and it would be enough to unlock all of salvation from no if if a person managed to be perfect somehow even overcoming original sin and then died he'd just have been doing his own basic duty that was the covenant of works be perfect in fact jesus reiterates that when he's showing us how impossible it is to find salvation in the law be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect no big deal Just do that. And so how then could a man do more than his basic duty so that more righteousness could be imputed to others so that there's leftover? You know, like the Catholic notion of the treasury of merit from the saints and Mary and and everybody that's waiting in heaven to be unlocked. There couldn't be a treasury of merit because anything that they might do wouldn't be enough even to merit their own salvation, let alone help you with yours. Even if someone were to live a perfect life and die a painful death, meaning for it to be on behalf of others, still, by not rejecting God's truth and being put to death for it, that would only be giving his or her due, okay? Which is a holy life to God. You are nothing extra in that. For that to happen, this person then must be God. So it must be human, must be God. Two natures. So, of course, we talked about, I don't have my mic today, um, the dead marker that I thought I threw away. And then we talked about this blue one that works really good. The Trinity, three persons, one essence, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son, we talk about a dual nature. Two persons, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a new heresy that we're not going to talk about because it doesn't exist. One person, two natures. So in the, the Trinity, the Godhead, there are three persons who share one substance or one essence. Within the Son, we talk about one person with two natures. Does that make sense? A human nature and a divine nature. And just like there was a tension that had to be embraced in the Trinity, and really in every Orthodox uh, teaching, all sound doctrine is full of these theological tensions, so 
in understanding Christ correctly, we have to embrace the tension of fully human and fully divine. Not half and half, not 100% some blend of the two, not God that seems like man but isn't, not man that attains to God and gets as close as you can but not quite, but fully human and fully divine, or he is not a uh, substitute that can win our salvation. So let's, let's hit some basic points of doctrine. One, God, the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, takes on full and true humanity. Which means if there is anything that is essential to humanness, Jesus has it. All right, so, so think of things that are essential to being human. Go ahead and throw one out. Eating. Eating. Jesus ate. Absolutely. In fact, when he is showing them, I'm not a ghost, he's like, grab on, see, flesh and bone. Also, that fish looks pretty good. Give me a bit of it. Okay, so he's showing that he's, he's even after the resurrection, it's not like he's a phantom floating around. No, fully God, fully man. Uh, the, I mean, even things such as... Uh, uh, awkward periods when you're going from being a kid to being an adult, right? Jesus dealt with all the stuff. All the stuff of being in the world as a human and being in a sin-cursed world, but he did not have a sin nature, which tells us then that that, well, we already knew that from, from creation, that's not essential to being a human. We often think of like these most human moments when someone falls or sins or gives into temptation. That's not that's not human. So, so Christ shows us what humanity should look like. Some people at this point want to say, well, hold on. What about God's uh, maleness? Uh, is, is that confirmed here? Because Jesus is born a man. Uh, and so he's the perfect image of uh, God for us, the exact representation of the divinity. And God is called he. Is God the Father then male? And that falls apart you can start pulling on it a little bit uh, from if you're if you're going from this fact that Jesus was male. You had to be male or female. Adam, the federal head, was male. Jesus, the second Adam, is going to be male because that is the system under which we fell and under which we are redeemed. Uh, we go from one father to another. And, and so, I mean, where would you draw the line then? You know, with race or gender or height or hair color or, you know, having a beard. Oh, God has a beard. Well, yeah, he does. Haven't you seen any of the paintings? It's a white beard. But, but there are things about Christ and his humanity that you just have to have genes, right? That's something that's... So that doesn't necessarily mean that the particular physical makeup of Christ is more divine. No, what's the essence of being human is having physical characteristics, and Jesus did. <laughs> I don't know how he would have been human and not. Uh, so Christ takes on the essence of humanity, hum humanity rather, and it is an act of addition, not subtraction. This is really important. It's not that God is in heaven, God the Son, and he says, okay, time to become human, and he like rips out all of his superpowers and super knowledge and all this. And, and you know, people misunderstanding the, the kenosis stuff in Philippians sometimes view the incarnation this way. Like, all right, forget that. I'll come back for it later. No, he sets aside his glory 
But it's not that he subtracts from him something to become human, rather adds to his divinity, humanity. Does that make sense? Kind of. But it also kind of breaks your brain if you think about it long enough because there's such a great theological tension in it. But nothing of the divine essence, that shared divine essence, is compromised in the incarnation. Nothing at all. And thirdly, then, we're dealing with one person, two natures, and that creates a tension. If you find a way to relieve that tension, congrats, you've just found a heresy. And that's almost always true Anytime there's a theological tension. Uh, it, that's why hyper-Calvinism is heretical. Where you say, oh yeah, forget, there's no will involved at all. And I don't even need to go and win people to Christ because God will do that without me. Uh, well, you've just said I can alleviate the tension between me going to God and saying, save me. And God having predestined that from before the foundation of the earth. No, embrace that tension. Go and preach the gospel and recognize I'm called to come to him and repent. I'm commanded to. Uh, I mean, we could go through all the loci of theology and find these tensions and say, don't alleviate them. Even though it might feel good for a second. Like when I was a kid and I had really chapped lips and my dad would be like, stop licking your lips. And I'm like, oh, it feels good. He's like, yeah, but just for a second. Then it feels worse. Don't alleviate the tension. Embrace the tension and let it build up and, and stoke the sense of awe at who God is inside of you. So, thank you, Kim. We've all got now a copy of the Avanation Creed. You probably remember that Trinity crest, uh, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Uh, very, uh, probably the best uh, visual representation, I think, of, of the Trinity. We already looked at this whole first paragraph up to the break. It was about the kind of minutia of the Trinity, and we read it and went, huh, okay, well, that's a lot of detail. So the second half, though, this is a sixth century document, the second half is about the dual nature of Christ. So as you can see, in the, in the early church, this is still early church, first six centuries are considered early church, those two things were really front and center, and the subject of debate, which is why they wind up the subject of creeds. Uh, the Trinity and the nature of Christ. Uh, I'm going to read the, the second paragraph then. After, therefore, the one who will be saved, uh, therefore, the one who will be saved, let him think thusly of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe faithfully the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the essence of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the essence of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touches his manhood, who although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by assumption of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of essence, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into Hades, rose again the third day from the dead, 
He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their own works. And they that have gone, done good works shall go into everlasting life, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the universal Christian faith, which except a man truly believe and firmly he cannot be saved. So it it's kind of gets into more general other doctrines, uh, summing up the Apostles' Creed at the end. But the emphasis being first on not three gods, but one God. And then secondly on not two Christs, but one Christ. And barring carefully protecting against any number of other errors about Jesus that might crop up if you didn't have creeds there to keep you. You know, the creeds are basically like, and the confessions, and the catechisms. They're like the bumpers in the gutters, right? Don't you wish it was acceptable for adults to use those when you go bowling? I do. I don't even know if they still use they have them, but like, I remember the first time they were new in like the, the late 80s, and I was like, oh man, this is awesome. And I was, you know, I'm 11, 12 years old. Like, yeah, turn on the bumpers over here. They would inflate back then. They, they, they Then you'd throw it and it would just boom boom you couldn't get a gutter ball you had to try really hard at the very end there was an opportunity in the same way the scriptures are our final authority but these documents are here to keep you out of the gutter bounce you back toward orthodoxy into the lane that narrow lane where what you're teaching and understanding is the truth of scripture so let's and we could walk through this but i think instead I want to read a little section from the definition of Chalcedon and then start talking about individual heresies. So the definition of Chalcedon is also uh, a litmus test for Christology, meaning to, to see whether or not the teaching about Jesus is orthodox. And uh, it says that we worship, quote, one and, one and only one Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, in two natures, and we do this without confusing the two natures, without transmuting one nature into the other, without dividing them into two separate categories, without contrasting them according to area or function. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union, but rather the properties of each are conserved and both natures concur in one person and in one reality, not divided or cut into two persons, but are together the one and only and only begotten word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you hear similar themes in both, not intermingling the humanity and divinity of Christ and confusing them, but not so separating them that you have effectively two persons living in one person, two Christs, and not dividing them so that it's like, like, um, oh, what are those uh, young ladies, the conjoined twins who could do all the amazing stuff? Um, you know what I'm talking about. They're always on the little clickbait things at the bottom. Uh, they're, they're, they're believers and they're, they're teachers now. And uh, basically, it looks like one person with two heads, but they each have an arm and a leg and they can drive. Like, they divide up the duties so that, like, I check the mirror I hit the turn signal, I hit the gas, I hit the brakes, and they're just so... Well, that's not what we have with Christ. It's not two persons mashed together with, well, I'll take care of the, the, you know, the divine will take care of the miracles, and the human will take care of the trudging around with the disciples. All of the God-man 
is involved in every activity. That's where the mystery really comes in. So when we talk about, we're going to talk about individual heresies. Don't get caught up on the names or even like, I mean, you can write them down, obviously, but in trying to remember them or anything, because my point is just to show you the patterns. And I don't want to overwhelm you and make you feel like it's impossible for you to think about Jesus without becoming a heretic. It's, it's not. Um, in fact, there are a limited number of possible heresies about the natures of Christ. And knowing those will free you from them. Uh, whenever someone says, I've got some new ideas about God, as the Adam Ford comic tells us, what they usually mean is, I subscribe to some old heresies about God. So, there are two categories of early church Christological heresies. Um, and really there's, oh, someone did that. That's awful nice of you. Really there's two categories of early church heresies. There's Trinitarian and there's Christological. And because the Son, of course, is, oh, I'm pointing at a thing I erased. Because the Son is a person of the Trinity, the Trinitarian heresies also have an effect on how people understood Jesus. So we need to talk about those a little bit too. Then there's the uh, formally Christological heresies, which are just about Jesus and how he's understood. So you remember with the, with the Trinitarian heresies, we talked about a whole bunch of them. Uh, there were two real extremes, right? Overemphasizing the oneness, overemphasizing the threeness. With one, you wind up with uh, modalism, you got one guy, you know, it's like a one-man show off, off, off Broadway where he keeps changing masks. Holy Spirit, oh, now I'm the Father, now I'm the Son, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that sounds blasphemous. No, because I'm making fun of an error, not, not the Trinity. That's not how the Trinity works. Uh, and then overemphasizing the threeness is you have tritheism. Now you're with Rome or Canaan where you're like, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of gods. Well, three anyway, and I worship all of them. Both of those extremes are problematic. That's why we embrace the tension. You don't try to alleviate it. We had an issue with uh, a Trinitarian heresy with a group that was meeting here, and it really was very unfortunate. Actually wound up uh, almost blowing that church apart. Thank God they are now, they've, they've recanted it and are thriving in Grand Rapids. They moved to Grand Rapids. Whole church together. Cool. So anyway, in the Christological heresies, having to do with the natures of Jesus, you don't just have two extremes. You weirdly have three. So the Trinity, which involves three persons, you have two extremes. In the Christ heresies, which involve two natures, you have three. If that's not confusing, it should be. Uh, and the three possibilities are to overemphasize his humanity, overemphasize his divinity, or overemphasize their union to the point where they're blurred together. All three of those come up in the early church, and all of them are soundly condemned at church councils and in some of these creeds that aren't just Catholic, quote-unquote, they're Catholic lowercase c, meaning all Christians, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, are bound to believe uh, by, these, by these creeds. I don't feel like I'm overstepping or even in danger of overstepping when I say that. I, again, don't expect you to remember all these. What we're doing is driving stakes into the ground, okay? 
And this is how, when you talk about God, you have to do it. This isn't God. 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 Those are all errors. But in here, we can talk about God. Right? Don't, not, not here, not here. So basically saying we're going to drive some stakes in the ground. It's important stuff to do. And some people really love talking about heresies. Some people are going to be bored out of their skulls. I apologize if you're in the latter category. Try and engage, though, because this will be helpful with knowing. You want to know Jesus, right? A lot of people today want to know Jesus, but they don't want to know about him. Right? They don't want to even do the study in the Gospels and know about it. They just want to know him. It doesn't make sense. It's like if I said, you know, when I, I met Alex before I met Sam. What if I would have said, hey, what's your wife like? And he'd have been like, oh, man, she makes me feel wonderful. I'm like, okay, that's good for you. But like, what, tell me about her. Oh, yeah, just, I really, I love her. Okay, awesome. But like, tell me about Sam. Like, what, what, you know, what's she like? Tell me what are her likes and dislikes? How, you know, how did you, how did you meet and, and what, what really struck you about her? What, what has she been doing? What's her life been like? What does she do for a living? What, any of these things. And he was like, well, I don't really know that stuff, but I just know that I really feel warm and fuzzy when I think about her. Like, he doesn't know her, right? Because he doesn't know what you have to know about before you can know. And so to talk about these things that might seem really academic and, oh my gosh, let's get out of this and get to the real life stuff. This has to be the undergirding of the real life stuff because we need to know Jesus before we can know about Jesus rather before we can know him better. It's not enough to just know about him, but it's also not enough to just have warm fuzzies and, and you know, say, well, I like having long walks on the beach with Jesus. You know, I, I love going into the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. Okay, that's all well and good, but hold on a minute. Do you know about this Jesus? Because only then do you really have the opportunity to know him. Uh, point probably made way more than needed to be. So f- first we have then heresies that lessen the deity, downplay the deity of Jesus. The first one is the Ebionite heresy. The Ebionite heresy was a first century uh, teaching, comes out of the Ebionites. Hey, that's how it got its name. Uh, which is a kind of Jewish Christian sect. Very, very committed to law and the, the Jewish creed, which is called the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. We also believe the Lord is one God. We believe in the Trinity. Uh, one God, three persons. Well, that was not the case with the Ebionites. They believed that basically humanity itself already being the image of God is the way in which Jesus was human and divine. So he, they, they talked in terms, it's almost like how Mormons will often use the same terms we use, but they mean different things by them. Intentionally, I think, confusing sometimes people who were raised in the church. They, they will talk about the divinity, but what they mean is just he's made in the image of God. So I could talk about the divinity of Sean. Because he's made in the image of God. No one would keep a straight face if I talked too long about the divinity of Sean. But with Christ, he did all these great things, and so you can get away with it. They accepted St. Matthew's gospel. They hated Paul's letters. They emphasized the law, not the gospel, which is why they hated Paul's letters. And they were pretty quickly, pretty soundly condemned uh, for basically having a Christ that was not truly human and divine. Uh, He was just a guy that 
really let the light of the image of God shine in him. This is often what you hear people say today, even those who would attend a church. I mean, I know people who attend uh, churches that are, that are sound or, you know, they're, they're listening to like, you know, they, some of the big churches, Hillsong or whatever, and, and you can get on there and, and uh, pick apart the theology and stuff. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching the truth about Jesus, and yet it's not sinking in. There's still, if you ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? Oh, he was a great teacher. He was a great man. You know, of all of us who have that spark of the divine in us, he really let it glow more than anyone, and we need to be like that. Uh, okay, that's Ebionite heresy. Uh, another one would be adoptionism. Uh, Serinthus uh, would be the, the kind of main proponent of this. Jesus was born human at his baptism became in a sense, divine, when the Spirit came down and infused him with all that divinity. Notice that in these creeds, Jesus is said to be eternally begotten of the Father. There's not a point at which someone who wasn't the Son is deemed the Son, and there's not a point at which God's like, oh man, I can't wait till I'm a Father. Oh, I am! Eternally begotten. There is the self-giving love relationship of the Trinity forever going backwards and forwards. Yeah. What would they believe about the stories of how Mary became pregnant if they didn't believe that he was divine until his baptism? Yeah, um, they, they would probably acknowledge miraculous stuff going on with his birth. I mean, they, really, when, when you look at the way some of these things are framed, even in like the Gospel of Matthew, they're framing Jesus as the true divine savior after stories of all sorts of emperors and kings had been presented as, you know, these, these false stories. And so, you know, it was kind of a common trope. Oh, you have to have a miraculous, I mean, even to this day, right? Who is Anakin Skywalker's father? There is no father, right? It was miraculous. So yeah, I, I don't think they probably saw a great contradiction, um, although they should have. Uh, and, and all of these, these are, there are people who did their dissertation on this stuff and know this stuff inside and out. I, I don't. Uh, this, this isn't my area of focus in, in theology. I do find it very interesting, though. There are Arians, not like white power people, but A-R-I-N, named after Arius, who was the first great heretic. Not great, not like great heretic, but like, you know, like a, the first horrible heretic, I guess, that, that had such a wide influence. The idea was in, in that heresy, Christ was the highest created being. He was the instrument of creating the world so they could look at John 1 and go, yeah, not us too, yeah. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses kind of hold to this now. Jesus is the first and greatest created being. And so give him reverence for sure, but not eternal, not truly God. He was the only one directly created by God. This gets into Gnostic teaching. Everybody else created by the Demiurge, which is sort of a, you know, blind, insane angel. Uh, and so this was condemned, first thing condemned at the Council of Nicaea, kind of the first big, we've got to react against this before it eats our church alive kind of a thing, AD 325. Uh, later on, there was a Renaissance version called Socinianism, also condemned. And then, of course, there's Unitarianism. You can find that today in churches that are Unitarian. Uh, and that would be, they, they don't believe in the Trinity at all. They believe in one God, and there's no room then for Christ to truly be divine. Christ gets 
demoted. Uh, again, if you go into a Unitarian Universalist church today, uh, you'll, you know, or a lot of other mainline churches, you'll get the moral example of Jesus as a great guy, but we're not over here like a bunch of weirdos thinking that he was God or something. Um, so those are the, the lessening of the de- deity. Then there are those heresies that lessen the humanity, downplay the humanity. You might think that that's less dangerous than downplaying his deity and saying he's not God, but they're not less dangerous, possibly more dangerous, because remember, if he doesn't assume humanity, he cannot redeem humanity, and that was the whole point. Um, you, if you were here when we did our study of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you probably remember uh, docetism. Who remembers what that one means? Kim? Aaron? Oh, Oh, that that Jesus was like a spirit that took on like a shape of a man or something. You're on the right track. Yeah, from the Greek, dokeo, which means to seem. So it's seemed-ism. Jesus seemed to be man, but was really God. Like, I mean, even anyone see Captain Marvel? Oh, you're not on the zeitgeist like me. What? Don't ruin anything. I won't ruin anything. There's a supreme intelligence. And, and if you live on this planet, you go see the supreme intelligence, and it takes the form of someone who's most important to you. So that you won't be freaked out by the true form of whatever the supreme intelligence is. This is like that, right? Captain Marvel heresy. Where, yes, he could have appeared as a consuming fire or in all the other ways, but instead he was like, I don't want to freak them out. I want to be able to intermingle with the people and, and you know, pour a few back with the, the boys and, and have the poor people come to me and the children. So I'll take on this form that looks like a man, but isn't. Huge heresy in the early church. Uh, in fact, part of what John was writing to refute was exactly this, writing in his gospels, writing in his uh, uh, epistles, even a little bit, I think, interwoven into the revelation. This was, John saw this as a great danger to overplay, no, never mind, you can't overplay the divinity because he's 100% God, fully God, to underplay the humanity and, and not recognize that our Jesus truly is fully man. If not, then this whole thing doesn't work and perhaps he can be said to have kind of cheated. (laughs) right? Uh, Just seeming to be. He's incorporeal. He's a pure spirit. uh, And hence, he could not physically die. What are some things that John works into his gospel to guard against that? I think I already mentioned one of them. The eating of the fish and the scars. Yeah, and there's the place your fingers in the holes in my hands, your hand in my side, this kind of thing. At every turn... Jesus is portrayed as very, very much not seeming to be human, not taking on human appearance, but actually taking on humanity and being human, having a human body, a human will. But we'll get there. So, so that's docetism. Again, you'll hear a lot of that today, too. I've heard this preached. It's a danger, I think, in certain kind of Pentecostal holiness circles where they have a lot of great strengths. This is what, every tradition has their, their weaknesses where they can fall into. And I've heard, you know, when, when we read about tabernacling in flesh, um, you can misunderstand that in a docetic way. 
And there are some who've basically preached, you know, Jesus came and, and put on a, a suit of flesh, a tabernacle of flesh, so we'd recognize him. He didn't really assume humanity. He just, you know, he's like, uh, puts on the skin suit. And, okay, there. Now look, I'm one of you. Wink, wink. That, that's not gone. That's still uh, an active error. And be careful of it. Run the other way. If you hear anyone that you watch on TV or listen to on the radio preaching like that, click. That's the, that's the one where John says, even greeting this person. Not a good idea, right? It's, it's, it's not anything to mess with. Uh, so then there's modalism, also called sobelianism, modalism. That's the one where God puts on different masks. All three are the same person, just doing different things. Uh, similar would be patripassionism. We won't talk about that. But this is uh, a Trinitarian heresy, but it has Christological ramifications because if the Father is the Son, is the Spirit, suddenly we can't really have the incarnation in the way that Orthodox Christianity uh, understands it. Uh, if, if God the Father, who is spirit, is like, hold on a minute, I'm the son now. Mm, no, no, it's not going to work, and, and we're not going to have uh, what Anselm determines we need, which is fully God, fully man, and in the person of Christ, he can come and pray to God and be filled with the spirit and do miracles by the power of the spirit and this sort of thing. So then there are those that separate or mingle the two natures. We're almost done. Don't worry. Has anyone found a heresy that you fall into or have been tempted to fall into yet? Don't raise your hand. Just chastise yourself quietly. It's Lent. It's a good time to repent of heresies. Uh, Nestorianism. I used to work next to a guy named Nestor, and I would call him Nestorius all the time. And it made him a little bit annoyed with me because Nestorius was a heretic. Um, he would pit the two natures against each other. So at any moment, either the human or the divine is at the wheel. Uh, and the, the real uh, way that this was condemned was uh, Nestorius taught that the Virgin Mary could not be called Theotokos or God-bearer because she only gave birth to the humanity of Christ, not the divinity. And if you're like, well, of course Mary's not the, the God-bearer, the mother of God. Again, that's Catholic. No, that's Orthodox Christianity. Of course Mary is the God-bearer because Christ is God. And so th that became a touch point for this whole discussion of the two natures of Christ. It was condemned at Ephesus, Council of Ephesus in 431. Uh, and I don't really... I, you hear it maybe here or there. If you're reading a devotional Bible or something, it'll, it'll maybe say, you know, like, uh, at this moment you can tell Jesus uh, fell back on his divinity, which is dangerous categories to start working in. Um, he faced all temptations like we did, right? So all, all the kinds of temptations we faced, Jesus faced, and he didn't cheat and say, uh, hold on, I'll make it look like I'm overcoming this, but I'm actually... You know, just kind of floating through it with my divinity. No, he faced them as the true man and overcame them and did that on our behalf. He didn't just die on our behalf, a sinless death. He lived on our behalf, the perfect life that we couldn't. And because he's God and man, it can be imputed to us like we did it, which we totally didn't. It's, it's just the best deal you'll ever find. Um, then there's another one called monophysitism. This has to do with the wills. 
monophysite, meaning one will, and then monothelitism, very similar. We won't parse what the difference is. Uh, the idea that Jesus, even though he had two natures, has one will, which is sort of a hybrid of the human and the divine. And you could see where that would come from a good place, not wanting to separate or divide, like some of the creeds say, not wanting to make Jesus kind of the schizophrenic, you know, uh, sometimes I'm, that's not schizophrenic, multiple personalities, sometimes I'm this, sometimes I'm this, sometimes, like, like I'm split. Oh, now I'm, now I'm Jesus the God, now I'm Jesus the man. And, and there's two different things uh, at war within him. Well, they're not at war, but Orthodox Christian teaching is that Christ has two natures, two wills. You probably are learning that for the first time because we don't talk about it. And I think if you went into even a church with people who are very well-versed in the Bible and said, how many wills does Jesus have? One or two? Most people would say one and think it was a weird question. And most people would be falling into a very old uh, heresy. I don't know that it's nearly as dangerous as most of the others because it gets into a real detailed parsing out, but it does have ramifications that are important. I mean, if someone tells you Jesus has one will, I don't go, uh-oh, pray for their salvation. I say, yeah, that's, that's pretty common. Um, can, you, can you give that an example of, like, two wills? Yeah. They're, they're perfectly in line with one another, so no. <laughs> a, it's like the, the example doesn't look like anything. It looks like Jesus deciding anything. Well, why do they say that? Like, what is the scripture? That would, it, would it be like in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was... Not my will, but yours. So, in the Garden, so both Jesus, human and divine will, are willing to go to the cross. Right. But there was a little bit of... Also wanting... So they're not... At, well, that's Nestorianism. The idea that they're kind of clashing with each other. This God-man doesn't want to die on a cross if he doesn't have to because he knows that it will hurt. And that's not a dividing of the wills, nor is it a blending together of the wills. It's, like everything, two wills. So, so there are some Egyptian groups that rejected Ch Chalcedon, the, the uh, council, and they kind of cut themselves off from the rest of the church, and that weakened the southern and eastern churches, contributed to a quick downfall of Christianity when the Muslim invasion began. It, it, it fractured the church before even, you know, the East and West schism. And that had a great impact on Christianity in Africa and the Middle East, even probably to this day. And so you say, what difference does it make? I think that was a big part of it because there was disunity about it. Uh, and I mean, there's, I can bring you a couple articles about why this stuff matters uh, and parsing it out a little more next time. Uh, but it's, you really get into the weeds with it. Uh, and you, you get into a lot of having to go, okay, let me take a few minutes to learn the vernacular here because you're going to be you know, reading theological treatises before you, before you read them. But you can understand them. Uh, you don't need to have a MDiv or anything. You, you, you could get them. Um, that's a beautiful thing, I think, about theology is like if, if a doctor was like, here, read this study, and it had all, I, I'd probably have to study for a month to, to have the, even the, the groundwork. But if you've been reading the Bible and you, and you know about Jesus, you, you probably can, with a little wrestling, get through anything in the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society. You know, you, you just uh, jump in, dive in, and, and you'll, you'll find a lot there. Uh, so, Eutychianism. 
Wow, that's a fun word. I'm, I'm looking at it twice before I write it down. Eutychianism, this is a bad one. A drop of humanity in the ocean of Christ's divinity. And I've heard similar things from pulpits in the 21st century. A drop of humanity in the ocean of Christ's divinity, it was enough to make it so that he was kind of grandfathered in. It's a little bit of a loophole, a trick, but still he's just walking around God. You know, uh, he's not even tempted by temptation. He's barely feeling the pain on the cross because he's God. There's just a little drop of humanity. Uh, why do people believe that? I, why do people believe any heresies? I don't know. I think because it might seem um, to, to damn him with faint praise to some to say Jesus is fully human. And I think part of that is because people think of human, fully human, as fully fallible. We have to understand, Bart called Jesus the true man, true humanity. If you want to know what it looks like to be a human, look to Jesus and do it that way. Because the way that we do it, the way you see when you turn on the TV or look at the comments under a news story online, that's not human. That's something less. That's something twisted. So yeah, he's true human, and that elevates humanity it doesn't denigrate christ but i think that's the fear i think that's where a lot of the, these come from uh and then a, finally last one apollinarianism uh apollinarius was a uh, fourth century heretic born in 310 and he taught that the divine logos logos is the greek word for word uh, remember in John 1, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the, and the Logos was God. Um, it's, it's also a Greek philosophical term. And so sometimes there's, there's some confusion over what John actually means and what others mean when they use it. The divine Logos took the place of the human psyche. Psyche, psyche being the Greek word for soul. So you have this person forming in the womb, and God is like reaches in, pulls out the soul, the psyche, the mind, all of that, and kind of flings it aside and shoves in the logos and says, there, this is going to be a very interesting person, uh, to quote Mulaney. So that, you can tell, clearly ruins the incarnation on a number of levels. This belief that Jesus had a human body and a lower soul, which was the seat of his emotions, but a divine mind. So kind of, instead of pulling out, I guess we'd say kind of pressed down the human soul and then above it installed uh, Logos 1.0. Sean, you've got Logos, right? <laughs> Maybe kind of a human coating with a God filling uh, and, and, and a little human filling underneath that. We have to recognize all of these things have something in common. They don't take seriously the mystery of the incarnation and of the dual nature of Christ. And they don't embrace the tension. They try to alleviate it. And our minds are always trying to do that. We're problem solvers, but these aren't problems. These are mysteries. These are examples of God's majesty and we should embrace them. So both natures of Christ are involved in everything Jesus does, says, thinks, decides, desires, both natures involved. Uh, he retains his humanity for eternity. 
He, it's not that he was God and man. He's man forever. That's that's good news. He's our brother and our co-heir forever. Yeah. But he wasn't man from eternity past. Right. Yeah, and so that's also a mystery. How does a perfect God add humanity to one person of the Trinity without becoming less perfect? Perfection and well, I'm going to ask him when I get there. His humanity is reflected in his perfection, though. Again, as Bart said, a true human is is Christ, and so true human humanity would be would be perfection. That's why the covenant of works in the very beginning said, "Just don't do anything wrong at all, or say anything wrong, or think anything wrong, and we're good." Uh, but Jesus does what Adam could not, and what Israel could not. And when you look at what what happens with Christ throughout the the story of Jesus. He's, you know, he goes into Egypt and comes back. He, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, for the 40 days. I mean, he's, he, he's tempted by Satan. It, it, this sounds familiar. Genesis chapter 3. And at every turn, he is true human and tempted in all ways as we are, yet remain without sin. He, in, in embracing humanity, he embraces humility. Uh, I, I've heard people argue about whether Christ could have become sick. Of course. Of course he could. Uh, he learned to speak. He, he had a dirtiest diaper for a while. He, he was willing to be humbled. Uh, he humbled himself and submits to laws of, of men and laws of nature, usually to both of them, <laughs> unless he had better plans. Uh, the, submitting to the laws of men would mean disobeying God, or sometimes he's just like, ah, forget the laws of nature, check this out. Uh, and he's permitted to do that because he's God. But if he had fallen back on his divinity to get through temptation, to get through the cross or anything like that, uh, he would no longer be the second Adam. And that's, at the end of the day, that's what we are prizing most in this incarnation is that he comes as the second Adam. So he has to be fully human so that he can be our substitute. He has to be fully divine so that he can do anything beyond the bare minimum and have something left over for anyone else. Only one could ever have done it. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, that's the end of that lesson. And the application is stand in awe of Jesus and uh, thank him for his, uh, his incarnation. Let's do that again now briefly. Lord, we thank you that you would come and dwell amongst us. Lord, we, we did not appreciate you, and nor do we to this day. We, we make a mockery of things that are holy. Lord, when you arrived here, you were... Uh, hunted down by kings and and laughed at by religious pretenders and ultimately beaten and, and scourged and killed by those who were supposed to be shepherds of your people. And Lord, uh, we just thank you that you were willing to endure all that, that Christ came, God in the flesh, to reconcile us to you. What wonderful news, what, what a wonderful God you are. And we uh, will never stop thanking you for it. Lord, we thank you that questions 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 aren't the end of the catechism. But the question, who is the redeemer of God's elect, uh, follows them. And it points us to you and how great you are. In your holy name we pray. Amen.